Wow. What an episode. <laughs> I'm exhausted. I think Justin, he said afterwards that, um, he, he felt like he had to go take a nap or something because he was, he was drained as well. Uh, and I, I mean, he really took us through, um, exhaustively an incredible assortment of cryptography technologies that can improve trustlessness in general and improve the decentralization of the systems that we're creating. What were some, some of your takeaways, David? Where do you want to start? Yeah, this was by far our longest and most dense episode. I'm definitely going to have to re-listen to this one, but there's so much to talk about. And like I said at the intro of this podcast, this is one of the podcasts that uh, I wish I had the ability to produce myself, but we needed the help of somebody like Justin Drake, who understands cryptography. He's at the forefront of cryptography, and he's also at the forefront of crypto economics and developing on Ethereum. Uh, this is such a powerful episode to understand simply because it is, uh, it, it, I feel like it pulls the curtain back. I've never really had the separation of crypto economics and had that into two separate conversations where we talk about the cryptography and what cryptography can do for the cryptocurrency industry. And then also talk about economics and what economics can do for the cryptocurrency industry. And then also order those things where they are appropriate. Uh, it takes a mind like Justin Drake's to be able to have that conversation. So tip of the hat for coming on and giving us the longest podcast that we've ever had on the Bankless program. Thank you, Justin. Yeah, I think it was, I think what's really interesting about this is, um, a lot of the problems that we see today in using something like Ethereum, for instance, um, might just go away in the future, right? The, these are the problems of, of having like a, a technology like a 56K modem, right? You have dial up, uh, and those problems of slow loading web pages and, um, they just go away as the infrastructure is built out and as the technology improves, as the user interfaces improve. And what struck me, David, was uh, how much more, I guess, potential there is for improvement given, like we've just applied the base minimum of cryptography to crypto economic problems so far. And we've produced Bitcoin and Ethereum as they are, right? But this is just like the beta versions of what these networks could be. It's very, it's very early stage. We're like PCs in the 1980s. We, we, we haven't even seen like the, the advent of the 90s and, and the mobile phone. So there's going to be waves of innovation in these crypto economic systems that, um, that, that come into the future. And I, it, it, I felt very optimistic that many of the problems we see today will, will be solved, but in order for them to be solved, it also seemed clear that a, a network has to actually adopt and incorporate these solutions, the cryptography solutions. And there was such a contrast when we talked about this layer zero being kind of the, the social layer, the meme layer between a Bitcoin that has fully ossified, uh, and a, an Ethereum that is actively trying to improve and incorporate some of these features in the future. The mental model that Justin proposed that uh, uh, cryptographic signatures and hashes are just the fire and the wheel of cryptography, I think was really powerful to me because that really puts into perspective how much more of a future we have left in this episode. Then we, then we went into, you know, so many different types of tools that are just beyond the wheel and the fire, right? Maybe, maybe we get to like, you know, the, the transistor, the lever, the, the car, the combustion engine. That's some of the, the stuff that really gets, uh, really illustrated for me how much more there is 
ahead of us. And you are absolutely right. It, it would be a complete shame if like we had to abandon a blockchain every single time we can't, we come up with a new cryptographic mechanism to incorporate. If we had an ossified blockchain that can't hard fork with social consensus, then we have to abandon a blockchain every single time we come up with a new tool. So that's why it's really important, especially when we are just 12 years into this industry, we can't ossify. It's too early. It's too early. I mean, I'm glad that, that, that is, that path is being experimented with. Like ossification is an important example to set but it also loses out on so much of what is left. Like imagine, imagine if human technology ossified in the dark ages, Yeah, that would be terrible for humanity. It's and it's important and especially beneficial for one specific blockchain to be able to iterate and develop and change as technology becomes available to it. I don't want to abandon every single blockchain that we create because it ossifies as soon as we create a new technology. That's, that sounds inefficient. Yeah, I do like the idea of like some ossification of the social layer though. Like the, the social contract that, you know, Bitcoin has to 21 million only. There's some value in that. There's some value in that kind of meme that, that, uh, ossification. But, um, Justin talks about how, uh, when you ossify that and hardwire that mimetic value into like the, in that, that social contract into the network itself, it makes a, a very brittle network. And ultimately, he thinks that uh, Bitcoin is going to have to port over to Ethereum in the long term, sort of like like Ethereum is going to be at some some stage Noah's Ark and there's going to be a flood and Bitcoin better better get aboard, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how Bitcoiners will uh, respond to this <laughs> this episode if they make it through to the end. What do you think, David? Do you think they're going to like this? You know, I think of all episodes, this provides the strongest roadmap for the argument against uh, Bitcoin over the long term, over like the 40, 50 plus year time horizon. I don't think I've seen a, or heard a better argument for why Bitcoin can't exist over the long term. Um, but Justin did a really good job uh, analyzing both the cryptographic weaknesses and the economic weaknesses as well behind Bitcoin and the blockchain. Um, what's interesting to me is that we the, we don't actually need to hard fork Bitcoin or have some sort of social consensus among Bitcoiners as to getting BTC onto Ethereum or any other new host blockchain. Somebody can spin up a trustless, according to Justin, according to what he said in the podcast, anyone can spin up a trustless two-way bridge between Bitcoin and another blockchain. And then people can port over their Bitcoins onto their new blockchain. There, there doesn't need to be 51% majority or 66% majority in consensus behind that. And so this can happen regardless of what Bitcoiners think about the validity behind Justin's arguments or not. Um, and so I think the, the fact that this is going to, it's possible for this to happen anyways is, is pretty powerful. Yeah, it, there's some important context there too. I think that um, some of the possibilities that Justin uh, illustrated and talked about like the technologies, they are ready to be moved into the real world, the, the practical. They've gone through the, you know, trajectory from, from theoretical to applied to real world, right? Um, and others will take some more time, right? Others might take five or 10 years. Some of the things Justin talked about, like uh, quantum compute, for instance, um, that could still be decade, maybe more away, um, throughout the term on, on the conservative side of things, like, like 30 years. What about the argument, uh, from, from Bitcoiners? Like, who cares? Dude, that's, that's 30 years away. I don't care about quantum. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm trying, just trying to live through the next 10 years. I don't, the argument I hear so often, uh, about Bitcoin's issuance policy is we'll kick that can down the road. <laughs> you know, let's figure that out in 10, 20 years. It doesn't matter right now. 
Do you think there's something to that, that um, some of these possibilities are just so far out and distance that they don't need to be addressed or thought about at this stage, at least from an investing perspective? You know, I actually do think that that argument holds weight, right? Because, you know, even we all know climate change is, is coming, yet investing in climate change companies is not really hot. Like people still invest in Ford, people still invest in the, the combustion engine, even though that we know that this cataclysmic event is coming regardless. Um, and to me, that's always kind of been the mental model that I've held for, for Bitcoin or BTC, the asset, is that it's an absolute revolution from the fiat, from the real world into the digital world. Yet it also seems to just offer this placeholder of value to hold value as we kind of figure out this whole crypto economic revolution. <laughs> and so like, sure, we'll hold our value in Bitcoin for now. And that's really bullish and short term, very bullish, short term being like year zero through 10. Beyond that, and this industry does tend to um, pull in future growth and assume it is here today. So maybe that actually does start to uh, the the difference between like quantum computing, Bitcoin, uh, a, a world with quantum computing and, and the world with uh, Bitcoin in that world. Maybe the, the market does start to incorporate that sooner rather than later because this market always tends to price in so much future growth. Uh, however, I don't think, uh, unless this podcast goes absolutely viral and everyone starts to listen to it, uh, I think that Bitcoin is still going to be relatively unaffected from the price action, from uh, the topics uh, that we talked about in this podcast for at least a decade, if not more. Oh, yeah. I mean, people are miles away from understanding. They're just wrapping their their minds around digital scarcity, right? And that's enough. Like, that's a that's a really hard concept to wrap your mind around. And Bitcoin has the simplest narrative for digital scarcity. But once you get past this digital scarcity idea, then you start to get into this, this uh, second, second layer of thinking about long-term crypto economic systems and other use cases for digital scarcity besides a, um, a unit of account or a, um, a store of value like Bitcoin. I want to maybe get your thoughts on something else, David, which is like, so um, I think Justin made the statement if, uh, I'm looking at it like correctly. Ethereum is poised to capture this exponential of cryptography. So he made the case that there's all of like we're in a just, just a stone age era of crypto economic systems. Um, you know, but Ethereum is the network that's poised to capture a ton of this upside. Maybe not all of the upside, but a lot of the upside. And we contrasted um, Bitcoin is being so it's ossified, so it's not intending to capture. And I think, you know, listeners can, can grok that, but why not other crypto networks? Why not other Ethereum killers or other blockchains out there? You know, Chris, Chris Dixon, of course, we, we had a guest a couple of episodes ago. Um, he, he's investing in other layer ones, uh, mm-hmm. for this very reason. So there was a little bit of a, uh, I'm going to use the term, though it's a charged term. Maybe there was a, a little bit of an Ethereum maximalist type bent to this episode that it's not going to be Zcash necessarily or Polkadot or Cosmos or whatever ETH killer you, you, you throw at um, Ethereum. It's going to be Ethereum that captures mm-hmm. this upside. What do you think of that argument? I know we didn't address it with Justin directly, but that was kind of a tone. Do you think that's, do you think that's the case? Yeah, there's, I think the answer to this question relies in the relationship between the protocol and the way that a protocol is constructed and architected 
and the community that it inspires to come around it. I, I, we, when I wrote that article, Bonding Together, I talked about the inclusivity of the Ethereum consensus, consensus mechanism and the inclusivity of the Ethereum culture. And I think that's very uh, relevant to what we were talking about specifically with cryptographers who need a playground to play in. And the EVM offers an infinite playground for cryptography to cryptographers to tinker with. Um, just that, that embracement of cryptography, I think, really sets Ethereum apart in ways that other ecosystems haven't. And I actually think that's why Zcash and Ethereum have a, a close relationship. Those communities are, are pretty well um, are, are pretty well convened. Uh, Zcash is a very much a cryptographic project, and a lot of that same applications are being ported over to Ethereum. Ethereum is a cryptographer's playground, and according to Justin, J- Justin Drake, and he's totally got me convinced of this, cryptography underpins this whole entire in the industry, right? If we have a the cryptographer's playground on one specific location in the cryptographic universe, in the uh, crypto economy, that's where I want to be. I want to be where the cryptographers are playing. Yeah, but so here's the thing about that, right? Is um, you mentioned Zcash and uh, an Ethereum-centric view of the world, and it seems to be playing out that this is the case that Zcash is is almost like a test net for larger networks, at least from a value accrual perspective. So totally agreed that they're doing amazing things, uh, and they've got a like a fantastic community of researchers, and you know, but that's very synergistic with Ethereum. Like the question of what about ZEC, the asset, right. you know, it, is that going to accrue value? So networks with innovative technology aren't necessarily the networks that accrue the most value. What do you think about that argument that, um, you know, part, part of the reason for Ethereum's kind of like win is its economic, mm-hmm. um, like nexus element itself. And like, the value of ether as an asset becomes a a force of its own that almost siphons off innovation from other networks into it. I know Bitcoiners have made this case that like all the best technology will end up on Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to make this case when you don't have a Turing compete like general purpose right. uh, EVM type function and you're ossifying your chain. But But maybe does Ethereum have the ability to credibly make that case that it has the economics plus the drive to continue to improve that, you know, it becomes kind of the locus of all of this. Yeah. I, I think all these cryptographic mechanisms that we talked about with Justin in, in the podcast, those are all apps. Those are all applications that we can put on top of Ethereum. I've never really understood privacy coins because privacy doesn't need to be an asset. Privacy is an application. And so I think the reason why there's Ethereum has become this shelling point is because all these cryptographic tools that we are tinkering with and innovating, we as in humanity, definitely not me, um, <laughs> all, all the things that we're tinkering with are can be asset agnostic. And so any asset can tap into these cryptographic tools, not just, you know, for zero knowledge, knowledge proofs, there's no reason why zero knowledge proofs need to be contained to just ZEC, the asset, Zcash, the asset that can be made modular and available to any asset on top of Ethereum. And so cryptographers want their code to be used. And where is that code going to be used the most, but inside the EVM on Ethereum made accessible to any and all assets on the Ethereum economy? That seems to be like a shelling point. That seems to be a network effect. That seems to be what everybody 
and, and where all the incentives are with the, the economics of Ethereum. So, you know, our Lynn Alden episode, um, I, you know, that, that was brilliant. I love that episode. Lynn is absolutely fantastic. Her biggest reservation when we started talking about Ethereum was that it's a not a completed project, mm-hmm. whereas Bitcoin is fully ossified. Mm-hmm. Um, Ethereum, you know, is still evolving, still improving, right? And she uh, gave high marks to Bitcoin for for that kind of that consistency and ossification and deductive marks from Ethereum um, because it's it's changing and iterating. But Justin Drake's lens on this world is a whole lot different because if what Justin is saying is, is true and that there are these 10x, 100x gains that can be made with cryptography, ossification at the base layer is like the absolute worst thing you can do, mm-hmm. right? It's like, you know, all of the strengths that Lynn saw in this ossification become Massive weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Do you ever use any mainframe computers that were developed in the 1970s and 80s? <laughs> like those things are dead. Right. And if these improvements come to blockchain computers in the way Justin's describing, um, Bitcoin, the network becomes like an old crusty mainframe computer. Mm-hmm. What do you think that this is just a fundamental different lens? Of, of seeing crypto that that's important and how, how important is this lens on crypto? Because we, we talked in our, in our uh, debrief in the, in the Chris Dixon episode, like it seemed like Chris Dixon only saw it through the compute lens and he didn't see things as much through, through the money lens. Do you need kind of a blend? What's your take here? Yeah. I, I think the juxtaposition between the Lynn Alden episode and the Justin Drake episode is, is as far and wide as it could be like, uh, Lynn Alden is a macro economist. She only pays attention to macro monetary changes. And Justin is a cryptographer, yet he also actually does on the uh, economic side pretty well. He understands that pretty decently. Um, and so I give credit to Justin for having a better blend than somebody like Lynn Alden does, who, I, you know, we, we didn't talk to, about cryptography at all with her. We only talked about macro. And I think somebody who is per- persistently only interested about the macro conversation gravitates towards Bitcoin because the Bitcoin is a macro commentary comment. Right. Right. And, and Justin is, is talking about cryptography, which is something that, you know, you and I aren't even all that familiar with. That's why we need a Justin, but definitely Lynn Alden is not familiar with. Well, so um, let me ask you this, David, who do you think is more right in their view of the world, Lynn or Justin? Oh, I'm with Justin, baby. Justin's got it. <laughs> Justin's got it for sure. I mean, I appreciate Lynn's perspective, but again, she's a, she's a macro specialist, whereas Justin is a cryptography and crypto economic specialist, which is just much more relevant to this industry. Yeah. It, it was really cool to see, like, um, I guess going into this episode, as you commented in the intro, like, uh, Justin reached out to us because he heard our series where we did sort of a bull case for Ethereum. And he was like, ooh, ooh, I have one. <laughs> right. <laughs> he was like, so uh all of us investor types and you know, Ethereum types who are talking about like through our different lenses of things and economic bandwidth and all of you know protocol sync. And um his might turn out to be the most bullish of them all, David, because he so. is getting a level a level deeper than than even us and, and talking about the actual technology that underpins this, this whole movement, the Moore's law behind 
the the entire technology in itself. So it was it for me it was very uh, exciting and almost bullish to just see Justin mm-hmm. as passionate about Ethereum as he as he was and wanting to contribute to this bull case here. You know, and I think there is definitely a resonance be- behind all the content that we produce with Vitalik because Vitalik is very much closer to Justin than he is to Lynn Alden. And I find myself learning way more about crypto economics and about this industry when I talk to Vitalik, of course, naturally. And Vitalik, and Vitalik is a crypto economist, crypto economic economist. That's a thing. Um, <laughs> and, and I feel like that's why we learn so much more from him is because crypto economics is what's up. That's where it's at. And that's what we talked about on this whole entire podcast. And that's where the information is. That's where the alpha is. The alpha resides in crypto economics. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, anything else you want to say about this, this episode? I think it's, I, I, if, if I understand this industry, I think this is going to be the episode that people look back on for years to come. Wow. Awesome, man. Well, it's been great doing a debrief with you, David. I'm glad we set that up. It's definitely a one of a kind episode. Very long though. Very two hours. Long. Hopefully yeah. people have the, the stamina to, 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 uh, do that. Maybe do it in two takes, but we're going to release it as one, right? Should we yes. do that? Yes, definitely. This is one. Awesome, man. All right. We'll see you later. Thanks everyone for listening to the debrief. Hope you enjoy these and stay tuned for next week's, next week's debrief as well. Take care.